If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about Crunch Chocolate Bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. If you think of 20th century Berlin, there are probably a few images that spring to mind. Some will think of seductive cabarets, brimming with artists and creative minds that shook up the Weimar era. Others may picture a city in ruins in 1945, decimated by battle and fearful of approaching armies. Or you might think of the Berlin Wall, a concrete scar that separated the city into east and west, and how it was torn down in 1989. Now imagine, as a Berliner, what it would have been like to live through all of this. And that's the concept at the centre of Sinclair McKay's new book, Berlin, Life and Loss in the City that Shaped the Century. He joined Ellen Evans recently to talk about the city's century of tumultuous history. We're talking today about your latest book, which is Berlin, Life and Loss in the City that Shaped the Century. Could you introduce listeners to your approach to the history of the city and its inhabitants in the 20th century? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Berlin in the 20th century, in many ways, kind of shaped the 20th century. Um, not only in terms of uh, the, the, the cataclysmic events of the fall of 1945, but also in terms of art, culture, science. And what I wanted to do was approach it uh, from the point of view, say, if you had been born in the year 1900 in Berlin, uh, imagine, and, and, and you were lucky enough to, to live through to your sort of 70s, your 80s, even your 90s. Uh, if, 
If you were born in Berlin at that time, you would then go on to live through an extraordinary series of of revolutions and and kind of violent upheavals. You have uh, the the Great War and the cataclysmic end of the Great War, which brought disease and violence and near civil war to the streets of Berlin with the German Revolution. Uh, then you have the Weimar Republic and the the vertiginous swoops of uh, in an economic disaster. Uh, cataclysmics of uh, depression, but also a city finding a whole new radiance, a city suddenly bathed in light, a city kind of exultant in its new artistic creativity uh, in terms of uh, cinema, uh, theatre, camera. But then you have uh, the 1930s, the rise of the Nazis, the psychosis of genocide, uh, and then the fires of war. And then after that, uh, the, 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 you have a city rent in two uh, by the competing ideologies uh, of the Americans and the, and the Soviets. And uh, the, the city then becomes the potential flashpoint for a nuclear third world war. And this kind of terrible neurotic tension lasts until 1989, when uh, we have the breach, of the, 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 the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, and finally... Uh, for Berliners, a semblance of, of some peace and security and stability. So yes, uh, the, 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 the approach of the book was to try and take it very much from the point of view of the lives of ordinary Berliners, uh, what it was like to, to, to live and work and love in a city which was just consist- consistently a, a, in a state of, kind of terrible kind of uproar and insecurity. <clears throat> Yes, it is an incredible span of history and one ripe for such an account. And I can hear in your voice, obviously, it's such a special place for you as well. What's your relationship with the city and its history? Well, um, it's, it's, it, it, this book in some ways is a follow-on from... I did a book a few years ago about Dresden and the bombing of Dresden in 1945. And during the course of the research for that, I... I as so many thousands, countless people have before me, fell completely fell in love with Dresden, and and as I say again, uh, the extraordinary accounts left behind by uh, its ordinary citizens, and the the approach with Berlin is very similar. There's a fantastic history group there called the Contemporary Witness Exchange, which over the last few years has been bringing Berliners together, so, and particularly older Berliners, uh, and capturing their voices, capturing their memories, and capturing the memories of their parents before them, uh, so that their stories uh, are kind of uh, told and preserved properly. There's a, a, the fascination also with Berlin is that in the years after the war, and particularly in the shadow of genocide, there were a lot of Berliners who were uh, reluctant to speak too openly about the, the traumas that they and their families have been through in the war because they could not presume to tell the world that they too had suffered atrociously when when after the you know the horror that had been visited upon the the the, uh, the, the Jewish population but it left this kind of um, it left this almost kind of a, a, a historical dark matter, this kind of this kind of gap, and the, the contemporary witness exchange have been brilliant in in 
just filling in those gaps, just collecting as many voices as possible, just to give us, uh, not just to talk about the, the trauma of, of the war and of 1945, but also to talk about uh, the, the, the early years of the Cold War, the texture and flavour of life, uh, the films that people were enjoying, the, the, the games that children played, all the little details that add up to a much, much more complete kind of uh, vision of the city. So that's in a sense, kind of what drew me in is uh, that the Contemporary Witness Exchange is run by these uh, volunteers, basically, brilliant academics. And uh, they've got a fantastic website, too, which, which I recommend everyone to go to. Uh, but yes, that's, that's what kind of drew me in. Wonderful. Well, I imagine some listeners are going to be going rushing to Google that after this. Um, so you, you write then about the city's uh, unshockable spirit. And I wonder if we can sort of start there. It's got a real sort of... Um, bold history there are very, very bold aspects of its history and this sort of unshockable nature what do you mean by that well yes i mean this but the, it, it emerges particularly um in the period after the great war but after the sort of failed german revolution this amazing sort of, uh, cultural contrariness uh, that uh, that uh, that breaks out all, all over the city uh it becomes this kind of incredible crucible of, of of both ideas and uh tolerance too way way ahead of its time it was an enormously cosmopolitan city uh from the 1920s onwards uh it drew in immigrants from all over the continent all over the world uh all sorts of different communities uh found a very kind of welcome home uh in berlin and on top of that uh there was an extraordinary kind of uh, pioneering uh, approach to sexuality too. Uh, the, the homosexuality was still covered, I think, by called paragraph one seven five in the in the German uh, uh, penal code, Pope code. But uh, the matters such as homosexuality were, were, were much more were explored with much much more interest in Berlin, and people were much more free to live as as they most truly were, uh, without being persecuted or or, or hounded. Uh, there was a very pioneering research institute, the, the Institute for Sexual Research, uh, headed up by Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, which did some amazing sort of work. That, 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 uh, uh, certainly for its time, and way ahead of all kind of other European capitals. On top of that, uh, you have this fantastic artistic scene, people like George Gross and, and Otto Dix, and this fantastic kind of burgeoning artistic movement, which was uh, produced fantastically sort of shocking art. And on top of that, you have uh, a film industry. Now, this is, of course, at the time when film was still silent, and for the German film industry, this was an enormous boom, boon, because it meant that their films could be sort of completely sort of international uh, in terms of... So, the birth of cinema as an art form really comes in Berlin, uh, in the studios, uh, in its suburbs, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the Fritz Lang epics involving Siegfried and dragons, uh, Metropolis, his amazing uh, visionary science fiction film from 1926, uh, which in turn, rather darkly, uh, partly inspired Albert Speer, uh, Hitler's architect, and Hitler himself. Uh, and you, this film industry produces extraordinary stars who then went off to Hollywood. Um, and among them actually was the director, Billy Wilder, who started his career uh, in Berlin. Uh, 
uh, the very witty film called People on Sunday, which is basically a, a comedy drama about four young people uh, mucking about as vaguely romantically uh, in Berlin in 1930. And even to watch that film now, there's not a trace of a swastika to be seen. There are no street fights to be seen. There are no sort of communists versus Nazis. It appears to be, in 1930, a, a city at ease with itself. And that is a, 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 a curiously kind of haunting thing in its own way. So yes, and on top of that, it's Einstein's city in the 1920s. You have the extraordinary uh, scientific innovation going on in Berlin. Uh, the Lisa Meitner and quantum physics and the, the exploration of nuclear, uh, the possibility of nuclear kind of physics. Uh, so yes, Berlin in the 1920s, it, you see this kind of explosion of, of both creativity and openness and inclusiveness. And then the great fundamental mystery is how then the darkness could have crept over it so quickly and so completely. Uh, the philologist Victor Klemperer, uh, who was himself Jewish, said that Berlin had always been characterised by its kind of contrariness and by its wit. And he thought that of all the places in Germany, uh, that Nazism could couldn't possibly have settled there, he thought. It seemed a kind of impossibility, uh, which makes the enigma of what happened over the years that followed uh, even more kind of haunting. And there are a number of um, catalyst events during this rise of Nazism in this period that I'm sure listeners will have come across before, the burning of the Reichstag and, uh, and so on. Um, so Berlin is inextricably tied up in this period. Can you take us more into um, this the, the city during the rise in the early 1930s? Yes. Uh, well, what, uh, the, what the Nazis did, as well as beginning very, very quickly uh, the persecution of Jews and Romani people and gay people, um, it, it, the, the, it also could have inverted uh, the city's previous strengths. So I mentioned uh, cinema and I mentioned art. What the Nazis did was that they, could, they, they turned that round. And so the streets started fluttering with swastikas, but they were still being filmed uh, because the Nazis were very aware of uh, film as a medium which could capture good of hearts and souls. And so the cameras were turned on Berlin, but now Nazi Berlin. And uh, the, the city in some ways was staged as kind of, as kind of a, a, a Nazi kind of, kind of film set. And it also led to, to outbreaks like the, the famous exhibition of degenerate art. So all those brilliant artists from the 1920s uh, who had forged such kind of, were now demonised um, and uh, more traditionalist uh, artists uh, took their place. And you also see it in terms of architecture. There's the fantastic creations of people like Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who went on basically to create the American skyline of American skyscrapers. All of that was demonised too. So Nazi architecture uh, fell into the hands of Albert Speer, uh, a young architect who's, who uh, believed in sort of, uh, a neoclassical vision. He started building a scale model of what he his vision for a rebuilt Berlin, uh, according to Hitler's orders. Uh, and this was a scale model in the Chancellery, which the two men would visit late at night, uh, almost like a whispered secret between them. And it's a, a city dominated by these terrible, vast neoclassical structures and dominated by a vast dome uh, of the, the People's Hall, which was 17 times bigger than uh, the size of St. Peter's in Rome, I think. But it was a vision that was kind of fundamentally deathly. This was, this was not a city for people, really. This was just a city of uh, grandiloquent dreams. 
And so, yes, with uh, with the 1930s, the rise of the, the, the... You had... I mean, Berlin, even after the Great War, had been quite a violent city as well. There had been endless kind of uh, street fights, struggles. Uh, but this crystallised uh, very much under the Nazis. The, the, the violence was brought into the kind of state realm, as it were, so as indeed was um, torture. And they took hold of the city. The, 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 again, the fundamental mystery here even at the very heart of Nazi Berlin, the, you see it on Kristallnacht, 1938, uh, the terrible night where across Germany, uh, the, 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 the homes and businesses of Jewish people across the country were uh, attacked ferociously and Jewish people were murdered in the streets. It also, yes, I mean, there was also a, a, a terrible outbreak of it in Berlin. I mean, Kristallnacht happened as vehemently in Berlin as anywhere else. But there were other onlookers too, Gentile onlookers who were horrified by this and, and confided to each other how horrified they were that th they looked at their fellow berliners who were taking part in these these terrible pogrom riots and their immediate thought for a lot of berliners was how must this look to the outside world what have we become uh, so even then in the city you have this kind of duality the Nazis had complete dominion, but not quite complete dominion they couldn't completely take over the imaginations of every single person and in Berlin of course, not everyone was a member of the Nazi party. I mean, people uh, had to be very careful about what they said because all conversations were being monitored, telephone conversations were being monitored. But at the same time, there was still, there was still space in people's imaginations for, for other possibilities. And despite this um, ideological resistance that, that is there, I mean, the horrors are inescapable. What did happen, as in much of Europe, to the Jewish population of Berlin at this time? As I say, from 1933 onwards, the, the screw had been turning on the Jewish population of Berlin, as with everywhere else. You know, there's Jewish people banned from cinemas, banned from certain parks, uh, certainly banned from professions, banned from making livings, and also then some banned from leaving the country. The oppression gathers and gathers and gathers. By 1941 in Berlin, the mass deportations uh, to the death camps begin. And there are some extraordinary accounts of the terrible impact placable, cruel bureaucracy of it. Elderly people being told that they've got an hour to pack one suitcase and then they were going to be taken to the railway station. And their neighbours uh, in these in these houses, in these boarding houses, in these tenement blocks, kind of looking on but not daring to say a word. Uh, just listening to footsteps on stairwells and the terrible spectacle of the elderly people being sort of taken, sitting on trucks and then being driven off to railway stations and no one knew uh, where they were going. As I say, there are some there are some accounts now which are just absolutely sort of hair raising, chilling, and kind of moving too from Gentiles as well as Jewish people. Sort of Gentiles kept looking on at this. At the same time, the, the, there were a few instances in Berlin uh, stories which are ex absolutely extraordinary now to read uh, of the U-boats. These were Jewish people who became fugitives, who somehow managed to slip into the shadows and avoid these deportations, and live a kind of completely underground, subterranean uh, existence in the city, sort of denying their Jewish identity. And many of them helped by uh, brave Gentile neighbours who would sort of either give them shelter in basements or help them uh, disguise their identities in other ways. So even then in Berlin, you still have this, the, uh, that fire of resistance never completely goes out. There's always that kind of flame 
there, that, that they will not be uh, totally and completely dominated. So for the Jews who remained in Berlin then, for everyone who remained in Berlin, what what can you say about the, the wartime experience living in Berlin? Is it fair to say that, I mean, the war completely changed the landscape of the city? Yes, I mean, it changed it to, to the extent where it, you would emerge from a shelter uh, into a morning that looked like night because the sky was sort of dense with smoke. And uh, a number of people would find it impossible even to... to find certain neighbourhoods or districts because the, 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 the streets had been bombed so completely and so thoroughly that the districts were just completely de- deconstructed. And the bombing of Berlin started, at, at, I mean, it had started early, earlier on in the war, but by 1943 uh, had an ex- a terrible, deadly, pulsating momentum where there's night after night the city was being hit. Uh, 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 just being reduced to rubble uh, everywhere. And so basically, from 1943 onwards, uh, the Berliners, the civilian Berliners who were left in the city were basically living this extraordinary, entombed, subterranean existence, uh, either in specially built shelters or in uh, brick basements or in these extraordinary flak towers sort of 200 feet high made of concrete but suggestive of kind of medieval fortresses and night after night they would listen to the the the, the, the endless booms and the thunderous kind of noise and this somehow became life uh and by 1945 uh as the, uh, the allied air forces were simply seeking to smash the city into the earth uh by the, the beginning of 1945 uh, and so daily life became just it, the, the threads of human nature was were stretched almost a sna- almost a snapping point. I mean, life simply became a matter of uh, trying to get some sleep, but never being able to get sleep. Emerging uh, at dawn, queuing for hours and hours and hours for the dwindling supplies of rations that the authorities could provide. The authorities, by the spring of nineteen forty five, were telling people basically to to grub up as many dandelions and weeds as they could. Uh, to supplement their their diets, there were potatoes were incredibly difficult to come by. Meat was practically non-existent, non-existent. The only possible consolation that was left was that there seemed to, there still seemed to be supplies of alcohol. But I mean, that, you know, the, that was it. So by the spring of 1945, uh, as the end of the war looms, Berliners have somehow adjusted to what must have already looked like doomsday. <laughs> And what's the, can we dig more into the sense of, of the Berliners that you discovered then? What are their feelings living in these bunkers, waiting for approaching armies? Well, the uh, the uh, the overwhelming sense was just uh, one of, kind of uh, fear of the approaching armies. Uh, because remember, most of the people who were, were, were sheltering were women, uh, because the men were all, all off fighting. So it was either women, children or old people. And... The rumours had come back to Berlin quite early on about what the Red Army uh, was, the nature of the Red Army, this conquering force that was approaching from the east. Uh, terrible stories of, of mass rapes and murders in uh, uh, Pomerania and Silesia, uh, and the stories were true. Uh, and the Berliners had the sense that there were a lot of Berliners who, were the, because... American culture had been so pervasive uh, in Berlin, even uh, up until the 1930s, even with the, the Nazis. You know, these were Berliners who were used to the films of Laurel and Hardy and Gary Cooper. So they were familiar with the Americans, even though the Americans were bombing the city 
uh, and even though the British were bombing the city, there were a lot of Berliners who were hoping somehow that the Americans would get there first because they, could, they felt there was some kind of connection there, but they felt no connection uh, with uh, the Soviets at all. There was just simply brute fear. And as the Soviets started to encircle the city and as they started to make their way into the suburbs, just with, you know, destroying block by block uh, with artillery and tanks rolling down the street, uh, uh, the, the prospect for the women of Berlin was absolutely terrifying and, and rightly so. Uh, here was uh, not just a conquering army, but a conquering army set on vengeance for all the atrocities that the Nazis had committed in the East. Something terrible and atavistic uh, was coming. The vengeance is beyond human rationality, really. It just spoke to the deepest, darkest corners of human nature. And uh, there was deep, dark fear as a result of that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Even in the tightest of situations like the Berlin blockade, there was a kind of porousness. And West Berliners who were facing power cuts every night uh, could basically go up to the, 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 the borderline of East Berlin and see the neon lights. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So it's very harrowing history, obviously, a very dark time in Berlin's history in the 20th century. Um, and there's lots of it in the book. Um, but if we'll move on to um, post-war, and you mentioned the various forces converging on Berlin in 1945. Perhaps we can uh, explain for listeners who might not be familiar with what happens then geopolitically. What happens to Berlin in these post-war years? How, how exactly do these forces um, work to divide up the city? Well, yes. Uh, what happens in those post-war years is that, that, that sometime before, uh, the, you know, a couple of years before, uh, the Allies 
uh, that's basically America, Britain, France and Russia, had discussed how Germany was going to be occupied and ruled after the war when victory came. And by 1945, uh, Berlin itself had uh, been demarcated into kind of four, four zones of occupation. The Americans, the British, the French, and the Russians, who would have the East, or the Soviets, who would have the East. Um, it was the Russians who, who came in first, or, or should I say the, the, the Soviets, uh, who made it to the city first. Uh, as a result, the Americans, the British, and the French didn't actually get, manage to get their forces into the city in terms of occupation and power until that summer of 1945. So the Russians basically had a two-month, three-month kind of uh, advantage where they... Where they basically not just uh, the, the Soviets took over the city and imposed their own kind of uh, the vision on it, but what then unfurled was uh, incredibly complex on so many different levels. Uh, the city was then divided into the occupying powers, and each took their own their own zone of occupation, and they all kind of coexisted with each other, uh, even though the Soviet system was obviously. Uh, uh, in a different quantum realm from the American system or the British system. Uh, but in the middle of all this, we have the Berliners themselves, uh, who uh, have no real kind of agency of their own. And also, bear in mind, these are Berliners who had been through the unimaginable trauma of of uh, the, 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 the events of 1945, the literally uncountable number of rapes and the repercussions, the family trauma that was continuing to echo through the city silently. Uh, but then you also have this other side with uh, the, the, the Soviet occupation and the, the, the other powers too. The Soviets, as soon as they went in, were very keen to start restoring the tokens of normal life. They wanted to get the cinemas open again. They wanted to get the theatres open again. They particularly wanted to get the concert halls open again because they recognised uh, that Berlin fundamentally had always been uh, uh, an intensely cultured city and its people were intensely cultured. And the idea was to to give them back the music that they had not had for the rest of the last few years, to give them back the film, the, the, the theatre. Uh, so uh, the, the, there was a sort of duality in that Soviet approach. They were absolutely ruthless in imposing control on their part of the city. It's Walter Ulbricht uh, was the communist who, who, who came in, himself a Berliner, who had been a communist in the Reichstag in the 1920s and 1930s, now returned to Berlin uh, to basically uh, take over it and the, the East Germany. So on the Soviet side, you have... Uh, Yes, this kind of this imposition of, of Soviet role on the American side uh, and the British side of the city, uh, you have suddenly these tokens of abundance. Suddenly, the, the cocktail bars are open again, the cabarets are open again, but not to Berliners. They're open for Americans and for the British people, but not for Berliners. It took a while uh, before the Berliners, who basically who were living in rubble still. Uh, who basically had very little access to proper food, to to any of that. But the, in terms of food, uh, it was those post-war years were just absolutely harrowing for Berliners. The, the calorific intake for for Berliners was something about one thousand five hundred calories a day, which is way below what it should be, uh, because it was very difficult to get supplies in. And the other thing that the Soviets did try to do, as well as the other occupying powers, was ensure that sort of. The, those kind of supplies came through again. But it must have been extraordinary for Berliners themselves. 
suddenly they were being occupied. Um, suddenly they were living their lives according to other people's rules once again, because to a lot of villainers, Nazi rule had been alien, and now they were <laughs> faced with this, plus the prospect of all this non-stop hunger from 1945, 46, even into 47. But then very gradually, absolutely extraordinarily, uh, the city starts to regenerate and the people start to find their old spirit. Um, as I say, the, the cabarets were very quick to, to reopen and people flocked back to cinemas, not least because uh, it was a much more comfortable place in many cases to be than home. Uh, at least you were in a comfortable auditorium. And even if the films they were watching were the so-called rubble films, these were sort of thrillers and dramas filmed amid the rubble of Berlin. Uh, but it seemed somehow more comfortable to be watching it in the silvery darkness in artfully shot black and white than actually facing the reality of it outside. So, as I say, you have this extraordinary thing where you have over a million citizens in a state of trauma and near-constant hunger. You have children who are going back to schools which are basically kind of the rubble themselves, and yet somehow a kind of sense of normality rebuilds and a sense of that old Berlin contrariness and wit uh, starts to come through again. And the American film director, Billy Wilder, came back to Berlin in those post-war years. He was now a colonel in the US Army uh, in a sort of psychological unit. And his job was to use film to basically denazify the population. That was the idea. And there were films uh, about the Holocaust, uh, documentaries about what what had been done in the name of the Germans. And it was Billy Wilder who oversaw the film so that they would have a proper impact on, on the German people. But he also understood that, that there was... The, certainly in Berlin, obviously a huge number of people did have to be de-Nazified, uh, as the phrase went, but there were, there were also a huge number of people who were... Had never been totally Nazified in the first place. Uh, there's a film he made in 1947, set in Berlin, called *A Foreign Affair*, uh, which is extraordinary to watch now because it's all about uh, the American army in Berlin in 1947, and it's about black marketeering. It's about uh, sexual black marketeering in a sense, uh, the, how sex is used for favors. It's a, it's a it's a comedy, but it's 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 as dark as midnight. Um, and there's one extraordinary scene now where there's uh, a, a father has had to take his little boy to the local police station because the little boy won't stop won't stop drawing swastikas in chalk on walls, and the father's saying, "How do how do I get him to stop? How do I get him to stop?" And the authorities say, that "It's fine. The little boy will grow out of it." And as the father gets up, we see that on his back, the little boy has drawn a, sw a chalk swastika on his back. To make those jokes in 1947 uh, was an extraordinary thing, but it also kind of there was an element of truth about it too, because underneath uh, the, the underneath the surface of Berlin, there was always uh, this this sense of, of defiant humour. Uh, the city was very much characterised by it. Uh, the Victor Klemper, who I mentioned earlier, said that that was one thing you always you could always count on Berliners for was this, the rough kind of redemptive kind of humour uh, that kind of surfaced. So yes, you have the most extraordinary extremes in those post-war years as the, the, the as the occupying powers uh, take over Berlin. Uh, everything between between sort of near famine, but also the return of art in the in the form of Bertolt Brecht, who came back to the city uh, and founded a theatre company there. So 
the, the, the duality of the city continues. And you mentioned agency and all the zones of the city rebuilding in the post-war years. Um, how much agency then did Berliners have or could have in terms of moving between zones or um, resisting the ideologies that were perhaps being imposed? And how did that change then going into the later decades? Well, going into the later decades, what happens in the 1950s is that the city becomes ever more bifurcated uh, between the, the different zones. But this is pre the Berlin Wall. So it's perfectly possible for Berliners with the correct kind of papers and documentation to move freely between all the zones. You could be in uh, Soviet communist East Berlin, the one minute, and capitalist <laughs> decadent West Berlin uh, the next. And yes, the Berliners are moving back and forth, uh, not just for leisure but also for work. Uh, you know, there were a number of Berliners living in East Communist East Berlin who worked in West Berlin and who would shop in West Berlin. It was extraordinary that the city held within itself these sort of different quantum states and the Berliners somehow uh, managed to see a, kind of a line of normality through it. But the tensions were always there. Uh, there was the famous Berlin blockade of 1948 to 1949, uh, which partly arose as a result of... Uh, currency conflicts. Uh, the, the, the Americans were introducing a new Reichsmark. Uh, the Soviets had their own uh, uh, currency. And so the Soviets blockaded the city. Uh, Berlin it was basically a city, an island in a sea of red, uh, because it's East Germany, of course, and East Germany was in, uh, in, the, in the Soviet zone of the occupied Germany. And in, this, in the Berlin blockade, we have an image now of of West Berlin being completely surrounded. There's absolutely no way in, no way out. The, the Soviets cut off the roads, the railways, the, the canals. And at the time, there was a real terror in West Berlin that this would lead to renewed famine. You know, how on earth, was, how on earth were they going to get food? But, it's a, but actually, the, the situation was slightly more porous than that. And even this illustrates the, the, the slightly paradoxical nature of post-war Berlin. That even though the blockade was uh, was total, uh, uh, the the Americans, the British, uh, started this famous airlift that went on for months, an amazing sort of operation, where a plane after plane after plane landing uh, seconds after each other would bring in uh, food, would bring in some uh, fuel, would bring in toys for children, uh, and became an extraordinary spectacle in its own right. But while this was going on in the Soviet sector. Uh, the communists were saying to people in West Berlin, look, there's still no wall. Why don't you come over? We've got huge amounts of supplies here. Can we tempt you with some of our supplies? We can feed you. Don't worry about these Americans, these British. We can make sure that you're all right. West Berliners absolutely withstood it and said, no, no, absolutely not. I think it was, it was said that about 5% of West Berliners took advantage of uh, various Soviet offers of either food or fuel uh, because they were getting everything they needed from this brilliant, uh, audacious airlift, which was kind of a, a, an international spectacle. But in terms of industry, it was still the case that a lot of the, the fuel for industry in West Berlin was coming from the Soviet sector. So even in the tightest of situations like the Berlin blockade, there, were, there was a kind of porousness. And West Berliners who were facing power cuts every night uh, could basically go up to the, 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 the borderline of East Berlin and see the neon lights of the eastern city beyond. So it's, it's throughout the 1950s then, uh, 
what you start to see is, first of all, competition between East and West, in artistic terms. Both East and West Berlin compete to get the best ballet dancers, the best opera singers, uh, the most prestigious kind of arts festivals, all this kind of soft power stuff. Uh, but at the same time, the economy of East Berlin starts sagging, whereas West Berlin becomes richer and richer, and the inequalities between the two sides become ever more sort of glaringly apparent. Uh, in 1953, there was an uprising in East Berlin, as there was throughout East Germany. Uh, a, a workers' uprising, because the, the, the Soviets were imposing too tight uh, work rotor production uh, targets, uh, which led to basically riots on the streets of East Berlin, which then the Soviet authorities said were being stoked up by the Americans and the CIA. So everything was about paranoia, everything was about crackling low-level hostility, and underneath all of this were the fears of the new Cold War in a new nuclear age, when both new superpowers were armed with nuclear weapons. And the eyes of the world uh, became ever more fixed on Berlin throughout this period as one of the potential flashpoints uh, for this new nuclear war. If it was going to spark anywhere, it was going to spark in Berlin because of the, the incompatibility of these two mighty geopolitical systems and that their tectonic plates could have rubbed against each other. And by 1961, it simply became too much for the East Germans and the Soviet side to see so many people going from east to west across that open border in the city. There was, there was one year when I think there were 200,000 people uh, crossed over, among them uh, doctors, architects, physicists, broadcasters, actors, basically some people. It was very difficult for the East German regime to lose. And the East German regime was in some serious economic trouble uh, as a result. So in some desperation, the Berlin Wall uh, came about as... Almost, it was almost kind of extemporized, even though it was implacable uh, at the same time. But what was also true is that in, when it started going up in August 1961, very, very quickly, the horror that rippled throughout the city uh, was, was quite extraordinary. And so then what does that mean for um, Berliner's sense of selves. I mean, I know the city was already divided into these zones, but how then is that sort of consolidated and how does that develop? Well, yes, uh, it's again, the East Berliners and West Berliners, they're, they're all Berliners, but under these different powers. And where you fall in the city is, is you know, largely a matter of luck. If you have to live in the east of the city beforehand, if your family happened to live in the east, you know, that was the system you were left with. There were lots and lots of people who made determined efforts to, to get to the west of the city, not just because this was where you know, it was more prosperous, but also that's because where a lot of family was. So the Berlin Wall, when it, the, the, when it started materialising on the streets, was a terrible thing because it, it not only trapped people within their spheres, but it also sundered families. Uh, it, it sundered loved ones. Hence the desperate efforts of people to, to sneak through the final gaps as they were starting to be filled in. There were people who found mazy routes through kind of old cemeteries as courtyards and across rivers. Even then, it's fascinating to read the accounts of the people who were actually building the wall, the men who were actually making the concrete, actually there on site, who said that they were fueled with a combination of coffee and rum. He said a lot of them were quite sloshed at the time. And it didn't occur to them that what they were doing was building something permanent. And it still didn't, and it didn't occur to them that they were building something 
something that would become part of the landscape of the world uh, as a symbol of oppression and fear. So you have this then, this extraordinary, like a jagged scar running through the city. And in the earliest days of it, there were Berliners, particularly West Berliners, who get right up close to it, who did, who, who actually sort of touched the Berlin Wall in disbelief. They could, they'd put their palms in the concrete. And there were others who could paste beneath it incessantly in agitation and distress. They couldn't, they couldn't quite fathom how this had become uh, the news of limit of their life, people standing on each other's shoulders trying to get glimpses of relatives. You can see all this of the silent despair and, and just this, the disbelief of it. But then uh, it became, you know, it, it, it settled. The concrete became uh, part of the architecture of the city, mirroring, uh, the, ironically, some of the, the brutalist uh, concrete architecture that was, that was being put up on both sides. Do you think then that the fact that the Berlin Wall today is such a um, symbol linked with uh, the Cold War division, the sort of the Iron Curtain, um, do we lose then the sense of what the wall actually meant physically and in reality for Berliners? Well, I think no, because I think in Berlin they've they've been quite good actually. It's uh, there are certain sections of the Berlin Wall you can still find uh, there uh, that have been preserved almost of museum pieces, and they, they do give uh, they do give an extraordinary sense of what it must be like because the wall itself wasn't always completely unchanging. There's kind of fascinating sort of architectural quirk about it. They were continually kind of rebuilding it in various different styles with different sorts of improved concrete or different ways of making it incredibly difficult for people to scramble over the top, and it, there's. A brilliant account from a man who was a guard on the East Berlin side, basically to, to ensure that no one got across the death strip. But, you know, the famous, you know, the famous image is of uh, this terrible zone in between walls where people try to get across and they're shot. And it's, 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 it's basically a zone of death. There was one East German guard who watched... The, the rebuilding of the wall in the 1970s, they, they, they were giving it a new architectural style, which meant that not only could people not get across, but people couldn't ram it with cars or, sort of, or go at it with heavier vehicles and that. And he looked at it and he looked at it and suddenly he realised, and his world turned upside down, he realised that this wall wasn't keeping the rapacious Americans out. This was keeping him in. And the reason he knew that is because he knew that on the other side, on the western side, on the free side, people could walk up to the wall and touch it. But he knew on his side, if anyone did that, uh, they would be in terrible danger. And suddenly, he, the, the way he looked at the wall completely flipped on its head. And if you take his story and then it kind of extrapolate that across an entire population of East Berlin, you see this, again, an extraordinary story of kind of... Uh, that essentially contrary spirits of looking at things in in a a way different to the way the authorities would wish you to. Uh, But also this incredible endurance as well. Uh, Because I say by by the 1980s, Berliners had been through almost a a century of this constant constant low-level anxiety and neurosis uh, and somehow managed to accommodate it within themselves and still uh, persist with uh, a certain kind of rebelliousness. It's lovely now to read uh, the stories of East Ber- young East Berliners 
who craved the pop music of the West because they could hear it. There's a forbidden radio service, but they could hear it coming from the other side of the wall. Uh, there was a rumour in 1969 that the Rolling Stones were going to play on top of a, a tower block in West Berlin, and East Berlin teenagers could rush to that part of the wall nearest to it. Where they thought, and of course, the, the, the Stasi authorities went absolutely mad, beat them back, and then the oppressions were set in. But it still raises the question, how on earth could the rumour have spread from the West to the East that this was going to happen in the first place? Uh, and then you also find it even up into the 1980s where uh, there were East Berliners who decided that punk rock was very much the way forward and absolute defiance of the authorities to the extent where the Stasi actually infiltrated an agent dressed up as a punk rocker himself in order to infiltrate one of these you know, dangerous youth groups uh, who themselves were hand-in-hand with the Lutheran Church, which itself was a a, a rebellion against uh, the the, the, the iron-grey totalitarianism, that communist regime. And so all the way through uh, the Berlin story, you see these brilliant outbreaks of of non-conformity and defiance. And given that defiance, then, what does that mean when the wall finally comes down? What does that mean for a sense of um, reunification of Berlin? Uh, but that particular night is that, that you get the sense from a lot of accounts, just that, that not just the, the the disbelief that something which has seemed as if it would be there, rather like one of Albert Speer's creations for a, a thousand years, suddenly just instantly disappears. But t- t- totalitarians, totalitarianism disappears like a ghost. But for many Berliners, remember 1989, for the older Berliners uh, who had lived through of the Nazi years and all the rest of it, this had been almost of 60 years of totalitarianism, which they had lived under, one in one form or another, be it the Nazis or be it uh, the communists. I suppose what it means is Berlin could, the, the true soul of Berlin could have reasserts itself and reasserts itself very, very quickly. But it's almost as if the real soul of Berlin had never that been that far away in the first place. It was always there waiting. Uh, and obviously reunification brought it. So there were, there were, there were bumps and and the tensions along the way. I mean, obviously, there had to be, because once two opposing systems then suddenly meshed into each other, and all a million different mindsets to be, to, to be changed. But think how quickly uh, the Berliners emerged from Nazism. It was assumed by the occupying powers that they would have to be sort of deprogrammed in the most sort of careful scientific way because they'd be brainwashed. But actually, as it turned out, uh, they didn't because uh, the the hold on the Nazi hold on the Berlin imagination had never been that strong in the first place, and the same was certainly true of the the East German government too. So the Berlin we see now, this uh, city, you know, from the point of view of visitors, very much uh, a city for some young people in a sense because it's very artistic, it's very bohemian. Uh, you've got these extraordinary kind of nightclubs. You've got this extraordinary kind of rackety sense of kind of urban life. Uh, that's a Berlin that many of those Weimar artists of the 1920s would have had no difficulty in recognising at all. Ah, yeah, this is exactly the same city, uh, with exactly the same kind of artistic vibe, exactly the same sense of kind of um, pioneering kind of exploration, uh, and a real sort of relish uh, in all the, def- the, the, the sensual delights of, kind of human nature. Because that's, that's the kind of real Berlin. For almost 100 years... Uh, the the geopolitics conspired it was almost like a boulder on a flower but that flower remained intact 
beneath the boulder, remove the boulder, and the flower is still there, open with the sunshine. I think that's the sense of Berlin, isn't it? That's what makes it so incredibly attractive to the international imagination still. was Sinclair McKay. Berlin, Life and Loss in the City that Shaped the Century, is out now, published by Penguin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 